Stephen King, a well-renowned author of horror novels and one of the greatest writers of all time, started out as a janitor at a high school to help him make ends meet for his everyday expenses. Brad Pitt once worked as a limo driver for strippers before pursuing a career as an actor and took acting classes on his own time. Within seven months, he found an agent and is now the most recognizable person that we know today. Brian Shaw was an Air Force pilot who had a passion for photography. He said he wanted to capture the opportunity. Uh, he now owns a photo studio in California and is, has the most widely distributed photos of the SR-71 in the world. Although these individuals made choices that had profound results, the choice remains the same. When is it a good time to make a significant career transition? When Jeff Bezos stepped away from his well-paid hedge fund job to sell books online, which resulted in the creation of Amazon, he asked himself, what would I regret more when I turned 80 years old? Trying something he believed in and failed? or failing to give something a try, which he strongly believed in. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, Ms. Jessica Gerard, a former Canadian infantry soldier, now a writer, and a jet mechanic for the Royal Canadian Air Force. Hi there. <laughs> Hello. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So this subject may not be as grand as founding a multi-million dollar company, but we want to talk today about making a significant career transition into the aviation world. Jessica, again, thank you so much for taking the time out today to come on to the show and share with us some of your experiences and some of your opinions about transitioning, making a, dr a drastic transition from one field that's completely opposite into the aviation realm. <laughs> yeah, and thank you for having me. And thank you for working with my schedule. We uh, we had planned to record this uh, last week, and then I ended up having to work the weekends. And you guys are super understanding. I'm sure you know what it's like. Just oh, aviation last minute. working weekends. Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> I Say know it. it's so, been, it's unheard of. <laughs> so so I'm gonna. I got one question right off the bat. Yeah. You were infantry, mm -hmm. and infantry is typically a group of angry individuals. Um, <laughs> now, when you transitioned over to aviation, were you Surprised or not surprised by how equally angry uh, um, aviation maintainers are? <laughs> well, so when I first transferred over, I'd been in the infantry for six years at that point. Uh, I was a master corporal. And then I took sort of a, a downgrade in rank when I did the transfer. Uh, and I went and joined up in my level of training in the Air Force with people who were straight out of basic training uh, and were just starting their, their training and their career as aircraft mechanics. So they were not grumpy enough yet for me. <laughs> um, I, I came from a, a background of like, yeah, there's a lot of rage in the infantry, but it's also cut by a lot of humor. Uh, so it can be a lot of really dark humor uh, oh, yeah. or just like that, that really angry, aggressive type of humor that I really relate to. But if you do that in the wrong crowd, it can be taken the wrong way. Yes. Um, and so, I mean, I, I had heard the stories about the Air Force uh, during my time in the Army, but I always thought that they were a little exaggerated. What was surprising to me when I transferred was that they weren't <laughs> and it was all true i'm always one to defend uh or or think that maybe things are being exaggerated and i always say like hey it's probably not 
quite what you're saying. So, for example, in the army, they they would talk about how when people in the Air Force went away for work, they would always stay in hotels. And I thought, well, maybe sometimes they stay in hotels, but that can't always be the case. But it, it kind of is. And it's shocking <laughs> to me. And it's, it's really nice. I have such a better standard of living uh, now being in this job compared to what I did before. But boy, it was a, a big adjustment period. And for me, what was most enraging was that people didn't appreciate how good they have it. Uh, After six years of sleeping on the ground in the woods, not even having a tent, you know, if it rains, it rains on you and you get wet and that's just it. Like I've spent over a week at a time with wet boots. Uh, I I used to joke and say I was professionally homeless, but you know, in the air force, I stay in hotels and people complain if, if the Wi-Fi connectivity isn't fast enough. And I thought it was a joke before, but it's not. Um, and it's, it's not the fault of the people who work in the Air Force. They're used to that standard of living. Um, some might say they have ha- higher standards than I do, uh, but I do get a little ragey about the lack of appreciation for just how good we have it. <laughs> I, I think there's a lot of similarity there between the Canadian military and the U.S. military in that because the same things uh, get said, and I know Six can attest to that. Where you know the Air Force, uh, you know that their trips in- include taking their golf clubs with them, type thing. <laughs> yes, you know, exactly. Five-star hotels, um, <laughs> while everybody else is at a Motel Six or, like you said, camping along the side of the road. <laughs> yeah, exactly. About uh, a year and a half into my Air Force career, I was sitting with a group of people. We were just shooting the shit one day, and. Uh, People were exchanging stories about uh, lack of organization when we've deployed to certain places. And this one guy started going on a tirade about how we landed on the flight line at this one particular base. And then we were staying in this hotel or they were staying in this hotel that it was about a kilometer and a half away. And the rental vehicles hadn't been sorted out yet. So this guy starts going on about how he had to lug his PS4 and his golf clubs on foot all the way to his hotel and was genuinely upset about the fact that he had to do this. And I, I just let him talk. I let, and he knew my background. Everybody in that group knew my background. And I just, I just let him talk until he was done. And then I just looked at him and said, yeah, was that hard having to carry your golf clubs, having to carry your gaming console all the way to your hotel. (laughs) And then they just kind of all realized what had been going on. And, you know, the perspective that I was coming from listening to this and everybody, Everybody laughed. And of course, there was a lot of fun poked at one another. But yeah, it it always throws me for a loop when people complain about how hard it is to carry your golf clubs around. Having that mission essential (laughs) equipment, right? Just lugging that all over the place. (laughs) So sorry, sir. (laughs) So now we make those, you know, we make those jokes here in the U.S. The same thing where we're making fun of somebody who's complaining about having to do that. And they go, well, it's just because I got a higher score in the ASVAB or whatever. Do you guys have that same thing? And then if they said that to you, did you proceed to uh, chokehold them until they went to take a nap? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really funny. There's definitely um, there's definitely ways in which we look down at one another from one side to the other. The infantry looks down uh, on the Air Force for certain things. The Air Force looks down on the infantry for certain things. Uh, and certainly... Some people make those jokes like, oh, people just weren't smart enough to go do anything else. But the truth of the matter is that so for us, it's called um, 
our aptitude test that we do when we enter the military. And when I did mine upon recruiting, I, uh, I scored high enough to do any trade that I wanted. And I, I chose to stay infantry NCM. Uh, I could have commissioned, I have a university degree, but I wanted to do, if I was going to do army shit, I wanted to do army shit. You know, I didn't want to sit at mm-hmm. a desk writing reports. I wanted to, I wanted to shoot guns and kick down doors. Um, and it wasn't because I wasn't smart enough to do anything else. And the same can be said about so many people in the infantry. It's just that we drank the Kool-Aid. We wanted to do the J-O-B and, and we did it while we could. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. You know, it's funny you mentioned that uh, w- people who join uh, ground combat oper- or jobs and they scored high enough on the aptitude test to do something completely different. Almost every Marine a sailor, soldier, service member that I know of who does this kind of combat arms jobs, they all scored fantastic on the on the aptitude test or aptitude battery, whichever uh, nation service you're talking about. But they scored amazing. And like these guys uh, score so high that they can almost be directly commissioned to be an officer. And when they when we see them as recruiters, we're like, why the fuck would you want to join the infantry? <laughs> Why don't you like, I don't know, dissect bombs or learn how to make like astromech droids or some shit, right? Yeah. And, and exact same answer, right? It's like, if I want to, if I'm going to join uh, ser- the Service X, I want to do Service X shit. I want to, yeah. I want to kick down doors. I want to see things blow up. I want, <laughs> I want to be the person on the front line. That's what they all say. And yeah, the, the type A, right? They're all type A personalities. But if you look at, you know, a lot of our current conflicts and stuff, I mean, it's the it's the small task units that go out there that are running and gunning that are making making massive differences that not a lot of the rest of the world sees or knows about or even the rest of your your military. Right. Even knows about. But that's the kind of stuff they want to do. They they want to be the. Uh, the. Uh, the difference boots on makers. the ground difference yeah. makers yeah, yes that's it yeah, yeah absolutely and i mean even when i was in the infantry and people used to make fun of pogues or or what be it i always stood up for you know the people that i am now um because every job is vital when people used to complain about clerks or supply tax it's like i don't want to do that job i'm glad that there's somebody who's there to do my paperwork so that i don't have to worry about it i'm glad that there's somebody keeping track of all our stores so that i don't have to worry about it every job matters and whether you're the boots on the ground or whether you're the financial clerk whether you're the aircraft mechanic whether you're the pilot everybody's job matters in an organization like this and i've always been a big proponent of appreciating the jobs that everyone does. Absolutely. Nail on the head on that one. So yep. I, I got to ask, uh, you mentioned you're in the infantry and this is a fairly new concept that's happening in the U S right now with women transitioning more and more into combat roles. Mm-hmm. Is that, uh, has that been a thing <laughs> with, uh, the Canadian army or mm-hmm. like, is that, um, a new uh, concept? <clears throat> So in Canada, the combat arms started allowing women to join uh, in 1989. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. So we were really ahead of the curve. Um, Way ahead. Now, it's still a slow trickle. 
Um, most of the time when I was working uh, in the combat arms, I was often the only woman. Maybe there was one other around. And it was like that weird thing where when there were other women around, we would usually kind of avoid each other. It was that thing where it was so obvious that we had something in common that everybody expected us to be friends, no matter how alike or dissimilar we were. So it creates that like awkward thing where there's so much pressure to, to be friends or hang out that, that you feel too uncomfortable to do so. So it was often just a, sort of a, a distanced mutual respect, uh, unless we were roommates. Uh, when we were rooming you, together, then yeah. we would get you know pretty tight. Uh, but if it was just a, a workplace situation, it was almost this like weird, awkward thing. Um, I heard this podcast by Michelle Obama where she was talking about uh, her and Barack meeting at a law firm where they worked and they were the only two black lawyers. And they talked about how, um, well, Michelle was talking about how other people were, were pushing her to maybe date Barack. And she just resisted it because she knew that it was just because they were the, the only two black lawyers at this firm. And it just felt awkward and it felt like people were pushing it on them too much. And that's kind of how it felt being a a woman with around other women in the infantry sometimes where people were just pushing it so hard that it's like, well, the only thing we really have in common is the share common genitals. Is that really a basis for friendship? And so that uh, it definitely is something that is still in the minority. Uh, it's not necessarily something that is pushed a lot, I think, at the recruiting centers. Um, so I was I was reservist when I was in the infantry, but I did it uh, full time. Um, I did it part time while I finished my degree. So for the first year and a half of my career. And then after that, I was trying to go uh, full time and treating the reserves as a, a full time employment, just doing Um, There are full-time contracts available that are on a shorter term basis than with the regular force. So I was just doing those back to back uh, and traveling around a lot. And when I put in my transfer to the regular force, I, I had three choices of trades that I could transfer to. Uh, And at the time I was working a three-year contract uh, on an army base, uh, working with the infantry. And I was a master corporal. I was, qualified at my job. So I thought that I would get transferred to the infantry. I put infantry as one of my three choices for the trades that I wanted to transfer to, to go to the regular force. Um, and then I also put AVN tech, uh, aviation technician, aircraft mechanic, uh, and then one other option. And I was actually offered meteorological technician before anything else, which wasn't even one of the options that I had put down. Uh, just based on the fact that I had some physics in my background, I turned that down uh, and then I was offered aviation technician. And I wonder how much of me not being offered infantry had to do with my gender. I have no way of knowing, but I, yeah, it, it did seem very strange. I expected to stay in the infantry and to just transfer to the regular force. Um, but that's not what ended up going down. Now I'm really happy with the the change that I went through. I love my job. I love I love fixing aircraft. Uh, I love working on the fighters, which is what I do now. But uh, it was super strange to me that they didn't offer me infantry because the infantry is always in need of people. That is very interesting. Yeah. And um, I mean, you're probably right. There probably is something to do with just being female. You'll never know, right? But we I'll all know, know that stuff goes. It's that we all know that stuff goes on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Who knows? 
Uh, I want to touch on real quick uh, with your time in infantry. And this was from an excerpt uh, when you went on the Women with an F-Dub Mind podcast with Jay Marie. And for those of you out there, if you've never heard that episode, you should definitely go check it out. Like Jessica's story on that is just very intense. Let's say that. It's very oh, intense. Thank you. Yeah. Very intense. Um, but what I want, uh, besides the actual story of why you went on there, uh, I kind of want to highlight a little bit about how you tried out for the special forces mm-hmm. twice. That's right. Yeah, I did. Uh, I was applying to be an operator for the special forces uh, for a unit of the special forces that focuses on chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear threats. Um, it had uh, it meshed really well with the degree that I took in university, which was a forensic science degree uh, with a a thesis in um, genetics, uh, focusing on bioterrorism at the end. Uh, so, wow. you know, it, it really, it fit really well that with, uh, combined with my infantry experience and the fact that I was pretty good at the soldiering stuff. I was uh, top shot for marksmanship at my unit. Um, it was just, it was the kind of job that fit really well with all the things that I had done before. And that kind of combined all of my skills together. And so, yeah, I applied. That's what took so long for me to uh, transfer from the reserves to the uh, the reg force is that for several years during my my reserve time while I was working contract to contract, uh, my main focus was applying to the special forces. So I was training twice a day outside of work uh, at the gym or going running, things like that, swimming. And uh Yeah, I I went through the selection process twice. I made it all the way through both times, which is, uh, I like to think is an an accomplishment in and of itself. Uh, My first time through selection, 20 of us started. I was the only woman. uh, And it's a a very rigorous process physically, intellectually, uh, emotionally, uh, in terms of just stamina. Uh, So 20 of us started during my first selection process and only four of us made it to the end. Uh, one of whom was an officer, so only three of us were were available at the end of that process for the the NCM trade that we were applying for. Um, and uh, yeah, so I did the the whole process two times. I thought I was pretty well qualified for it, and unfortunately, I I didn't get the job. I mean, like you said, like just going through it twice and finishing twice is a, a monumental accomplishment. I can say that to the fullest because. There are some special forces training screeners for almost any nation where your breakoff rate is like 80, 90%. You'll see like half your class drop within the first week. And absolutely. Or you'll see individuals who would make it, but they're broke. So they can't actually continue training. So Mm -hmm. like, like, well, you made it, but you're broke. So uh, better luck next time. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So like, yeah, you're, you're, uh, I'm sitting over here, mouth open, kind of in awe. That's uh, you're a hard, a hard mother, as they say. You know what I mean? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate That's that. That's impressive. Thanks. So, so with that, right? So you've had a bunch of amazing accomplishments as an infantry person. You have tried out and passed twice for special forces um, screeners. Oh, well, the selection process, we, that, that's like a whole different animal in itself. So, I mean, someone who's within the SF community, please feel free to chime in on this one. But, <laughs> but going from that and then switching over to something that's like equal but opposite yeah, <laughs> as, yeah. As, a, as an aviation mechanic. Oh, yeah, definitely. what was the allure? What was the allure there that said, I want to go and do that? 
what's that? The aircraft mechanic stuff or yes. the yeah. special? Yeah. 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 Um, so I, like I put going that from, down going on from running and gunning basically to <laughs> running to the flight line. And that's about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, I think everybody in the combat arms, no matter how much you love it, every now and again, you're in a trench, sleep deprived, hungry, bored, up to your calves in just puddle. Um, and you think, is, was this the right choice? Is, is this what I want to do with my life? Um, don't get me wrong. I loved the job, but I think everybody has those moments where you're like, do I want to sleep outside for the rest of my career? So there's always that, that little bit of a, ah, is this really what I do for a living? Do I want to keep doing this for a living? It is a hard life. Um, and with that, difficulty comes a lot of reward uh, for accomplishing everything that you do on a, on a daily basis. Uh, there comes an appreciation for those small things in life. Like when you do go home and you're under a roof and you're in a dry bed, uh, I hope that I never lose the appreciation for those little things that we usually take for granted, but are really, really wonderful things. Um, so, you know, part of me, has always wondered, you know, I'm really happy to, to be doing this right now. Do I want to do it forever, though? Uh, and then the other side of it is that I've always been mechanically inclined. I've always really liked fixing things. Uh, when I was in university, I went to civilian university uh, and I, I put myself through financially and I was I was broke. Oh, man, I was so broke. But I would buy these old cars um, for my first car. I think I bought for eight hundred dollars. So you, you can imagine <laughs> what a piece of shit that was. But we, we uh, call that a hoopty. <laughs> oh, big time. Big time. It was a 1992 Mazda MX-3. Uh, it had a one point right. eight liter V6. It was the smallest ever chain produced V6. And it was so rusty and everything was going on it. It had some water ingress and a couple of the struts it had uh it had a clutch that was on its way out i didn't even get it home before the clutch blew apart i had to get it towed the rest of the way home uh and then i i changed the clutch on it myself and i didn't have much training as a mechanic but i just i read auto repair for dummies uh i would go to a shop and you know kind of play the cute girl card a little bit and ask mechanics for advice when i really got stuck on something um I suspended my engine using some four by fours and some chains. <laughs> like I, I did yeah. it real ghetto, but it, uh, you know, the, the final result worked, uh, but I just, I enjoyed it. And I, I loved the feeling of hearing a vehicle roar back to life. Once you fixed it yourself, um, that feeling of finding the problem and then fixing it. I've always enjoyed that. And so during my university career, I, uh, I flipped some cars where I would I would buy cars for really cheap because they needed repairs uh, and I would pick cars that needed repairs that were mostly expensive because of the labor that had to go into them rather than the parts. Um, so clutch changes, alternator changes, things like that. And then I would get parts from scrapyards or wherever I could. Um, and I would I would put in the work myself and try to sell them for a profit. Uh, so I'd always been interested in mechanical stuff. And so I thought, well, fixing jets, uh, that would be that to the umpteenth degree. And I would get proper training on it. I'd probably have access to the proper equipment so that I don't have to be suspending engines from four by fours. Uh, and 
I also have always had a bit of a, a touch of OCD and I'd always heard that aircraft maintenance, everything is very detailed. So that appealed to me. And uh, yeah, that was, that was the main appeal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, uh, now you talk about the detail aspect when you switched over and became an aviation maintainer. Did you, some of it is very detailed, but were you surprised <laughs> at how, how much is not? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges for me was finding that appropriate balance between mm -hmm. doing everything by the book, doing everything. I mean, you're, you're always doing everything safely, but still you have to know that those aircraft are still required. Right. And so you can't just break everything for every single small thing. You have to be able to appropriately assess what is a safety risk, what is not, and be sure to have those aircraft available when they're needed. Um, and so that's, that's definitely a big challenge in this line of work is being able to make those judgment calls, uh, always putting safety first, but also understanding that those aircraft can't just stay in the hangar and you can't just work on them indefinitely. Yes. Yeah, exactly. We've touched on that a few other times where it's uh, doing it by the book and, and being able to meet the mission. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. As we all know, in deployed environments, you know, and I'm sure from your own experience, Jessica, that you, you've realized that, hey, we need to get this fixed. But we're going to take some shortcuts here. You know what I mean? Yeah. And this um, is the, this would be like one of those like because we're in the environment we're in and the outcome that we needed to happen. And I see that as an ongoing trend for people who want to transition into the aviation realm. Like they have like this inner calling to, they want to, they want to see uh, a fulfillment in their labor, right? Mm -hmm. They want, they want that scrutiny. They want that, um, that, uh, that technical expertise, right? For MVP and myself, like before, when we transitioned to the aviation realm, we did something completely different <laughs> from it. Mm -hmm. um, myself, like I, installed telephones and programmed cell phones i uh did like little mom and pop stuff on cars like just hodgepodge it together as best mm -hmm. i could be with the tools that i have uh mvp himself can vouch like he did all kinds of stuff to include utilities work and then what what drove us it was it was, it was mostly need right like i need a better job i need a better living condition i need Something to help me pay the bills, um, just like how you've uh, illustrated. And then aviation just so happened to be the one thing that just hit all the check boxes on the first go. I mean, we, we for all we know, we could have been NASCAR mechanics if we saw that ad first instead of working on planes. But very true, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, for me, I wanted to be I wanted to be a pilot, right? And to this day, I still have not even got my private pilot's license, but I wanted to do. Ever since I was little, I wanted to fly, fly, and I wanted to go fast, right? And um, I wanted to, you know, be a fighter pilot, whatever else. Um, uh, some some back issues I was born with uh, finally prevented that by all branches. Um, and they said no to heavies and no to helos. So I uh, saw an ad for A&P School, which is airframe and power plant here in the States. Um, and I went and got my license to work. As I call it, um, you come out as a jack of all trades, but you don't really have an expertise on anything. You kind of pick that up in your on-the-job training. Um, and I said, well, I still like aviation, so let me maybe that's a way I can stay 
in it and relevant and figure it out from there and eventually maybe fly at some point. Still haven't been able to fly, but, uh, but I'm in it. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Industry. Yeah. So, uh, when you, you're in an aviation unit, you went through the training, you went, you're about to check into your first unit or actually when you're starting the training, let's back up a little bit. When you started Mm -hmm. the training, what was one of the biggest challenges you had to have adjusted, you had to adjust (laughs) to going from a ground pounder, let's call it that, from a ground pounder to being an aviation mechanic? Yeah. Um, I mean, in in the army, there's in the combat arms, there's a, a lot of discipline, right? And um, there's a, a lot of emphasis on the chain of command, on staying in your lane. If you're if you're a private or a corporal, you don't try to take over the job of your sergeant. You know, uh, if you're a sergeant, you don't try to take over the the job of your warrant officer or, or your uh, your platoon commander. You you stay in your lane. You do what's required of you. Uh, and all of that is very useful when it comes to a combat situation. Everybody has to know their job. Everybody has to know their role. Uh, and it's, there's a reason for that structure and that structure can make things very efficient as well. It means that when someone's making a decision, if people below them don't agree with that decision, that doesn't matter as long as it's not an unlawful order even if you don't agree to the utmost with what your boss is saying, you just fucking do it. You know, that's, that's the army way. Whereas in the air force, it really is a bunch of little individuals. And that's seen as a, as a negative thing, being called an individual in the combat arms. That's a, that's an insult. Um, that means you're doing your own thing. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, but in, in the air force, it's uh it can be a little bit more chaotic. And now there's a reason for that as well. It's because the nature of the job is different. So as an aircraft technician, as a corporal, you have to be able to say to your sergeant, to your warrant officer, to your officer, this aircraft is not ready to go flying. And you can put your foot down as the people who are on the hangar floor, as the people who are in charge of that aircraft and who are the subject matter experts in terms of those repairs, you are the one who gets final say. So that's why those cultures are different. And I appreciate that, but that change in culture can be a little difficult to deal with um, where people don't seem as disciplined. And that is something that I had a tough time swallowing. Um, And that, that lack of that perceived lack of, discipline. I'm going to call it that because it's, it's just a different type of discipline. Um, but for example, I, when I came to the unit that I'm at now, um, I started off at a different unit at a, a testing establishment. Uh, and now I work at the fighter pilot school uh, and I fix the jets there. Uh, it's called 410 squadron. And so when I first got there, I was assigned to, so I'm qualified for both uh, airframe and engines. And I was assigned to the engines cell. And I I had a tough time at first understanding how things were run in the hangar, because kind of the way it works is that everyone shows up to work. There's a board with all the jets that need fixing and what's wrong with them. And everybody kind of just picks a job and goes and does it. Um, But there's no... 
there's very rarely any oversight in terms of like a sergeant or a warrant officer or somebody assigning jobs saying like, this is the priority of jets. You go and do this. You go and do that. It's just kind of an every man for himself. And the first person to pick a job and start doing it is the person who gets to do that job. And I, man, I had a hard time with that because then it kind of winds up being that the person who gets the most experience is the person who's got the strongest personality. And that seems chaotic to me. And that doesn't seem like the right way to, um, to organize a unit or a squadron. It's wild to me that the experience goes to the most alpha type personality. Um, and so I, I spent a lot of time sort of fighting against that internally and just being really frustrated that this is how things were run. And uh, I was assigned to the, the engine cell. Um, but whenever I wasn't busy doing stuff with engines, I would go and help out airframe because I was qualified to do that as well. And I wanted to get as much experience as possible. But the person who was sort of the expert in the engine cell uh, wasn't really training me. Now, I don't know if it's a if it's a gender thing. I don't know if it's that he didn't like me personally. I don't know if it's that it didn't even go that deep uh, and he just didn't think about me at all. But I would ask him questions and I would get the most vague answers. I, I felt like I wasn't developing. I felt like I wasn't getting any training and I was just getting more and more and more frustrated. And then eventually it came to a point where I said, okay, I have to start rethinking things because I can't just keep being this frustrated that no one is running things and that it's just every man for himself out here. I have to figure something out. And then I it's gave it a little bit of thought. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Sorry. Uh, more to say. Please continue. Yeah. No. And so I gave it a little thought and, and I thought, well, you know what? If in this quote unquote economy, uh, the you know, the money or the, the currency is alpha type personalities, then I'm a goddamn trust fund kid because I, I have a very strong personality and I have quite an alpha personality. And I thought, well, I may not agree with a system that's run this way, but at least I'm in a good spot to participate in the system, whether or not I think it's a good way to run it. I think I just have to accept the things that I can't control, which is that this is how things are. And as a corporal, I'm not going to change that anytime soon. I don't have enough power to change that culture or that level of organization. But what I can start doing is throwing more elbows in terms of what jobs I get and to make sure that I start to get more experience on these things. And another, you know, part of what really bothered me was that there was no oversight. There was no control over who did what. And there was somebody in the airframe cell that was a really good trainer and that did talk to me and elaborate on things with me in a way that I learned a lot from them. So since there was no oversight, I said, well, instead of getting frustrated about the fact that no one's controlling who works where, who works on what, I'm, I'm going to take advantage of that, not in a negative way, just working within the system that's offered to me. And since no one is controlling anything, then I'm just going to go where I want to. So then I started working more with Airframe, not necessarily because that's the work I liked more. I like them both equally, but just because the people there were training me more than the people in engines. And so it really took a, a mind shift on my part to start working within a system 
that maybe I didn't agree with, but accepting that that's just the way it is. And I have to work within that. And ever since I've had that mind shift, things have gone a lot smoother for me. That's, that's very interesting that there was no, uh, no leadership. Usually there's a shop lead or leads right from each, from your back shop, from your airframers to your engines, to your, to your crew chiefs or whatever. And somebody you, and usually it's maintenance control. I don't know if you guys have a, a centralized maintenance control, but usually it's them directing out what the priorities are and who's got to do what. And then your individual shop leads can delegate down to the lower ranks from there. Yeah. Um, now mind and you, then somebody's got oh, to, I'm sorry. Uh, somebody's got to report that progress up back to maintenance control. Cause they're going, what's the status of my jet? Because ops is going, Hey, we got a flight schedule to make. Um, but jumping in just randomly on a job, I can see how that would be frustrating and chaotic where you're going, I, I don't know what to do here. I'm new here. I'm just trying to learn. And then as for your engine shop experience, um, you know, from, from my experience, typically a lot of the folks who do that, it's one of those, if I teach you what I know, I am not relevant anymore. And, mm. and that's, that's more often than not the case, right? I don't want to do anything better to better to elevate myself. I don't want to put forth any more effort. This is what I do. This is, this is what I know. And this is what I do every day. And if I teach somebody else how to do that, then that's them. They could take my job and I'm no longer uh, uh, in their eyes. I'm air quoting here, valued asset, but, but really the valued asset is training enough people to do your job. So either one, you can promote or two, I mean, you can take a day off and the wheels keep turning, right? Somebody's there to cover you. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh and I, I can only speak to the units that I've belonged to. Maybe other units run things differently. Um, I know that I craved more structure because then there would be more of a, a fair distribution of work. But um, maybe maybe it's that my expectations for structure were too high because of my background. Uh, I don't know. But it's, uh, yeah, that, I think that was my, my biggest obstacle to overcome was that expectation of more structure and then yeah. learning how to work when that was absent. And I don't think that expectation is too high. I think it's, uh, I think it's almost necessary, right? Um, Cause otherwise, how does anything get done? If everybody comes in and everybody chooses what they want on the board and somebody walks up and says, man, the last thing to do is, is change all the hydro and fuel filters. Well, I don't want to do that. I don't feel like it covered in hydro fluid and fuel. Why should I go do that? So I'm going to go do something else that's really not relevant to fixing up the jets. I'm going to do paperwork. And then, I mean, it is relevant to fixing the jets, but they're doing paperwork instead of doing something they should be, which means they're just screwing around. But yeah, I mean, um, now, mind you, the the proper things were getting done. The way the board is organized is by, you know, the jets are uh, that are the highest priority go to the top and lowest priority go to the bottom. There's like color coding involved in it. and. I think leadership just trusted their techs to to pick the proper jobs to do in the proper order. Um, but when it is just everybody of the same level figuring it out uh, without much oversight, it can feel a little bit chaotic. I turned into that too many chiefs and not enough Indians type thing. A little bit, but part of it was definitely that it was just a different type of structuring than I was used to. And sure. over time, I learned that one particular corporal for each trade was usually kind of running the show. It's just not as obvious because there isn't that 
that rank differentiation. It's more whoever has the most experience amongst the mechanics for each different specialization um, tends to run the show and, and organize who's doing what a little bit. But uh, it took me a while to, to learn that system. I, I like to touch on that too, where you said uh, whoever has the highest amount of experience gets to run the show. That was 100% true when I was going through because um, all throughout all my training, it was that structure like there is one, there is one leader and then he has a, a, a subordinate or an assistant and that's it. And the rest of you just like follow along to whatever tune they, they play. And then I transitioned to my unit, whereas like there are no NCOs. Well, there are no NCOs on the floor managing things. There were, there were uh, sergeants, corporals that did the overall condition of the shop or of the hangar, whatever the case may be. But all of the rest of the stuff, like how the work gets divvied out, how the, how the or shop is organized, how what priorities are set to what is all ran by like mechanics who probably just bit, had maybe one to two years experience. Mm-hmm. And, and then they'll just have like these next to no experience and they're just barking orders at these guys like full alpha pack mentality. Like, <laughs> like, oh, you're the new kid. Guess what you're doing today? Fuel samples, mopping up the oil spills and go and, uh, and dumping out uh, all the trash. Do it yeah. now. Uh, yeah, uh, go mop drip trays. Yeah. Uh, what? Right. <laughs> and and if you ever did see a, a corporal or a sergeant, oh, you fucked up. <laughs> mm, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, you never see them. Like, like all, all throughout your training, all throughout your experiences, that's all you saw your life was corporal, sergeants, warrant officers, and things of that nature. And then you come to this part, there's not a single one of them in sight. Like, where the fuck did they go? Where are all these people? And then when you finally do see them, like, oh, we fucked up. Like, like <laughs> we weekends are getting canceled. Somebody's going to go mop the rain. <laughs> Someone's yeah. Gonna- yeah, exactly. I mean, in, in my squadron, all those higher ranking folks, I mean, it's mostly corporals and then some aviators on the, on the floor um, and some master corporals. Once you get to the rank of sergeant and higher, they all stay basically in the area where we go to fill out our paperwork. Uh, we call that like the snags area. And when you see them on the floor, you just start getting nervous about whether or not the hangar's clean enough because that's usually what they're checking for. Right. And that, that's kind of the scenario MVP and I are in nowadays where like we've progressed enough in our field as far as mechanics concerned. So now we go to inspect other people's processes, programs, progress all, and all that stuff. They're like, somebody fucked up and I want to know who it is. We just get like this, <laughs> this train of people following us like, sir, can I help you? Is there a problem? Do I need to get you anything? Like, <laughs> no, what, 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 what are you doing out, you out of here? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, come out, and you might just be walking out just to say hi because you hadn't seen a, seen some of the people in a few days, and they but they just assume you're coming to deliver bad news, like oh yeah. what now, and you're going up nothing. I just come to say hi. I just, just need to stretch to my out. legs. Like yeah. say, say hi to who? What what did he do? What did he or she do? Is there something I can I can I can ask them for you? Like what? No, no. Yeah, Time you out. just start noticing that your presence is making everybody nervous now. Like oh, when did yep. this happen? Right. Yep. <laughs> uh, so with, with uh, we mentioned a little bit about the structure of it all, the, the drive to actually be a mechanic at all. Um, I'm going to touch a little bit about the gender piece because this is still an ongoing thing, especially here in the U.S. Has there ever been times when you've got challenged or 
they didn't feel your talent was up to speed because you were a woman in the aviation realm? Oh man, I, I really appreciate you guys asking this. It's not always uh it's not always the case that that men are interested in hearing about this stuff. And I really appreciate it when they do take an interest. So thank you guys. Um, yeah, for sure. It's, it's not as bad as it was in the infantry uh, because in the infantry, there was just so much fewer women and it was in a way it was nice because I felt like I was doing more for gender equality when I was in the combat arms, because I would have, you know, I, I'd have people come up to me, every now and again and say, Hey, I didn't think women should do this kind of work until I worked with you. And yeah, it's shitty that they thought that before, but at the same time, it feels good to change people's minds. There's a lot less of that, uh, in, in the air force, because there are more women, there have been more women for a while, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the issues of gender inequality that exist in the world they're still present in the Air Force as well. And it's certainly not a 50-50 a divide. Uh, women are still in the minority in, in this industry as well, um, mm-hmm. but much, much less so, so than, in the, than in the combat arms. But yeah, I mean, I, I still deal with, with sexism. Just this past week, um, I was working in servicing and I was uh, fueling a jet and the, uh, the fuel truck operator was this, this older guy and uh, one of my male coworkers came by to chat with him, and the the other tech that came by to chat with him, he's much younger than me. He has much less experience than me, uh, both in this trade and in the military overall. Um, but they were shooting the shit, and then the fuel truck operator looks at me and he goes, "You plug your ears," because he was about to say something to the guy. And I'm like, I just look at him I'm like I'm not going to do that. And then he motions the motion of plugging your ears and he goes, do this. <laughs> just oh, I can't stared believe you're him. Oh <laughs> man. I just stared him down. And like, I, I was a little like dumbstruck because I can't believe that people are still going around saying stuff like this, but I just stared at him. And then he went on to say the thing that he was going to say. And it was a, kind of sexist thing about a, a female uh, fuel truck operator uh, that he was working with. And it was just so baffling. So yeah, I still deal with stuff like that. Um, usually from the older generation, um, the, the opposite problem that there is with the, the younger generation is that a lot of people seem to think that those problems don't exist anymore, um, which they still do. They're just not that visible. Uh, or, you know, people don't notice them as much. It took me, I went back to uh, like the, the area that servicing hangs out in inside afterwards. And I was telling the guys what had just happened with this fueler and the tech that had been with me who was talking to him went, oh, yeah, I guess that is sexist. Like sometimes people just don't really notice, but it's like, I'm not a child. Don't tell me to plug my ears. It's wild. Right. So stuff like this, like overt stuff like this still happens uh, less frequently. But then there's there's little things that are harder to put your finger on, like. Am I being included in conversations as much as uh, some of the guys are? Uh, There's always that that little bit of discomfort where some guys are maybe a little bit more reluctant to take me under their wing or to mentor me uh, because they're afraid that it'll look like they're hitting on me uh, or maybe it would cause issues at home with their wives if their wife found out that they were spending too much time with another woman. Um, 
you know, there's there's these little barriers that still exist that I wish could just magically lift. Um, but overall, it's improving. The, the Canadian Armed Forces are doing a lot of work to try to change the culture, to make it more inclusive, more diverse, uh, which I appreciate. But it's it's a long process and the results aren't always immediate. Well, it was definitely. Yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame that kind of stuff still happens. I just had a conversation with uh, a girl who works for me um, last week, right? And we, in my department, we're we're hiring another uh, manager. And I told her she should apply. I, she's got management experience. She's one of the top two people I have in my department. Um, just excellent. It's been turnkey. Ever, ever since she came on on board, I mean, it's just been fantastic. And I said, "Hey, you should apply for this. I think you'd be excellent for it." Uh, and it was a position equal to mine. I said, "Do it all day." So, so she did, and applied, and uh, ended up getting beat out. And the reasons that they gave to her, I think, are kind of BS as to why she didn't get the job. Right? Yeah. Um, I didn't agree with it. Um, but it's what she, she's like, Hey, look, I'm not, you know, no harm, no foul. I'm not, uh, I'm not upset about it. Um, the only thing I kind of am upset of, you know, about, and she's like, and I can't prove it, but was I asked to apply or was I entertained just to check that female box? Right. Mm. Um, and she's like, she's like, if that's, you know, the case then she was like, I'm, I'm, I'm a little upset if that's the case. So she's, she's like, but I'll, I'll never know that. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, the whole process, like whoever, you know, doing the interviews and stuff, they said, Hey, you know, you're, you're like one of our top, top candidates, this and that, then, then to go and choose somebody else. And, and while that person may have had higher, um, degree levels, right. But experience wise, I don't think they match her. But again, it was I think it was the reasonings that they gave her. And I'm kind of like, that's that's where that's what made her start going. Hmm. Was I just a box? Yeah. Did I never have a chance? And I was just the box to check. Right. Yeah. And and these are some of the things that make it so hard to address these issues is that they're so hard to identify some of these reasonings. It could be a lot of other things or. It could be the gender thing. And it's so hard to address a problem when you're not even sure if it is that problem in the first place. But then over time, you start to notice this pattern of, okay, these things tend to happen more to women than they do to men. And then you start to realize that it is a problem overall. But on a case by case basis, it's always so hard to determine, was this a gender related thing or no? Right. And as you said earlier, I mean, in this industry alone, there's not a lot of women. And so, and the ones that we do get are, 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 in my experience, have been been pretty pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it makes it it's either this way: they either promote super quick, or they're never given a chance. Yeah. And the ones this you know, and so I it just it, it's kind of it's kind of unfair, right? Because we're trying to bring more women into the industry, or at least that's what the industry says. And then you get them in there, and then the ones who are worth their weight in gold. Um, kind of get stagnated a little bit, right? They're not there. It's harder for them to, to progress up. And I, I don't agree with it. I, I think, I think there's some, a lot, not some, a lot of work still to be done in that aspect. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because they, 
I don't want to, you know, we don't need to lose these people. And I, and I tell them all the time, you know, I'm like, Hey, uh, please don't leave me. If you're considering leaving me, please don't like, I'll, I'll let me see what I can do first. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't want you to get frustrated and, and decide to like, this isn't for me. I'm gone. Absolutely. And I think it's great that you, you took that subordinate of yours and encouraged her to apply for that other position. I've read research about how women are much less likely than men to apply to a position. If so, say there's a posted position and there's a list of requirements. Um, if somebody, if an applicant doesn't fill all of those requirements, a man who doesn't have all of those requirements is much more likely to still put in his name and apply for that position, even if he doesn't meet all the criteria per se, whereas a woman right. will be much less likely to apply for a position unless she meets 100% of the criteria. And what that says to me is that sexism or gender bias, whatever you want to call it, it's not just men thinking less of women. It's also women thinking less of ourselves. Um, we've all been conditioned, both men and women. And on a very subconscious level, we just tend to have lower self-esteem because of all this micro-messaging that we've had our entire lives. And so women are less likely to go after certain things unless they feel that they are absolutely perfect for a position. And so I think that a way to help that along is for leadership to recognize talent in, in all of their subordinates. Um, but keeping in mind that maybe women are less likely to go after certain things and encouraging them when you feel that it might be the right move for them. So good on you for doing that. And please keep doing that. Yeah. I mean, I, even to the point of, and I, you know, and I, <clears throat> I do it for, I try to do it for most of my team. Mm -hmm. I said, Hey, you know, if you're thinking of leaving, let me know, let me see what I can do first. Right. To make your life better. I try to be, have that very open, like that they'll come and tell me about something before it ever festers and gets to them to the point of wanting to leave. I said, but hey, if you're even considering like you just want to try a different department, different whatever here, let me know. And I'll, and I'll write your letters of rec recommendations all day. And I said, it'll suck to lose you, hmm. but it would suck to lose you. It would hurt more to lose you altogether, right? Absolutely. Yes, I might lose you from my department, but it would hurt the program more to lose you altogether. Yeah. And so, it, it gets into that piece of leadership where you, you want to look out for your people, not just be a company man. Oh, and I am. Uh, and that's one thing I, when I finally got into a leadership role, I told myself, cause that's been majority of my, my experience in leadership. It was all, all about the company and less about the people. And I said, that's one thing I didn't want to be. So I'm more for all the people. And I, I kind of bad to say and made to admit on here, but like, the company is the company. The wheels keep turning whether we're here or not. Mm -hmm. That's just the way it is. It's it's the machine. The machine keeps turning whether you whether you're there every day and putting in fifteen hours a day, or if you take your vacations and I, time off. Like that's the the machine keeps turning. So while my people were there, if I can make their life inside the machine better, that's that's what I should do. Because if I can make their life better, they'll make my life better in turn. Absolutely. And you know I think the company usually benefits more if people right. feel that they're, they're seen and heard. I, yep. I'm just so mind blown with uh, the stuff you two have said so far. I'm like just nails on the head across the board <laughs> with uh, addressing your people and their concerns to feeling qualified to do the job in the first place. And that's monumentally huge. Like all the stuff you said, like, Oh my God, like, like, 
put these in bumper stickers and, and start selling them because they're just so, they're just that monumental. And uh, to sum it all up for everybody, for them, is you got to assess yourself as to why you want to make a, uh, a career change, a significant career change of that. What's the motivation behind it? Is it because it's a code organization culture thing? Is it lack of uh, fulfillment thing? Uh, is it just a straight gamble? Who, who knows, right? But you got to take the time to ad- uh, address and assess yourself. Like, why do you want to do it? What's the timeline going to be like? Like, when is this change expected to happen? What do you expect to do? Is there something that you can do to experience it? Kind of like sort of expose yourself. Like mm-hmm. they have mm-hmm. like this, this reach out program or uh, on the job switch training or like cross training that I meant to say cross training <laughs> on the job switch <laughs> cross training or, or just something to expose you. So like, you know, like if you are going to make this transition, it's something that you're kind of sort of wanting to do. Because if it's just like a straight up dice roll, you can be in it like, oh, this is so much better than my last job. Kind of like what you were saying with being uh, calf deep in the mud. And then you find yourself three weeks later, you're instead of being calf deep in mud, now you're calf deep in fuel. (laughs) (laughs) You're going, really, what was the trade off here, right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, trust me. It's a good trade off. (laughs) I make more money for having an easier life. So no question about that. (laughs) Right. That's good. Right. And so, so those are the things you definitely got to ask yourself. And I'm, I'm going to put you a little bit more on the spot on your side hustle here, uh, Jessica. So on top of uh, transitioning from being infantry to aviation, you're also doing writing as yeah. a side gig. That's right. Um, I, when I first joined the, well, when I first joined the Air Force and got posted to my first squadron after my initial training, I, uh, I was a little bored. Um, not not at work, but I was just so used to work taking up more of my life and then switching to more of a nine to five type position. I, I had so much free time compared to before. And so I, I worked uh, second jobs. I worked as a, a bartender at a Marriott hotel for a little while. Um, and then the uh, the story that I talked about on the podcast, Women with an Effed Up Mind, uh, something big happened with regards to that whole story. And I, I just had enough. Um, and so I quit my job as a bartender um, because I didn't have time to write, but I, I wanted to write a book. I decided, you know, I, I essentially just kept on being denied employment because of things that were pretty strongly related to my gender. Um, and I was being refused uh, upwards movement, not in my direct chain, but, you know, in terms of work with, with the special forces. And I felt that it was really strongly related to my gender and I wanted to address it in a public way, but also in a a way that I could fully dive into the issues. And so I'd been toying with the idea of writing a book about it and eventually something happened. It was the, the last drop in the bucket. And I just, I said, all right, I need to dedicate some time to this. Uh, and so I spent, you know, free time, weekends, uh, leave, uh, diving into this book. I, I spoke to people in the industry. I started going to writing conferences. Uh, I joined a group of authors that were all writing books uh, and got sort of advice from them. I got them to, to review my writing. And then uh, about a year and a half later, I received a writing grant uh, from the Canada Council for the Arts uh, for... A significant amount of money, and now I, 
I get paid uh, as a part-time job uh, a certain amount per week for two years, uh, plus some of my expenses. So for editing fees, legal fees, things like that, um, that's all covered. So I can actually say that I'm a professional writer uh, and my book is well underway. I just sent two thirds of it to an editor while I finish up the, uh, the third, the third, third. <laughs> um, so it's going really well. And I hope that uh, once the book gets out there, it helps address some of the issues uh, relating to gender in the Canadian Armed Forces, but also in the, the, justice, the justice system at large, um, because all of these issues, they're not just military issues, they're societal issues that are amplified in the military because of the gender ratios within it. Wow. So you're basically doing two major transitions right now first <laughs> first as an infantry person then infantry and aviation now out of the military altogether and into professional writing yeah let's let's that's look, pretty look inspiring at, actually look, look at you that's just like really being cool and killing it what's <laughs> it like to so be much. cool for real <laughs> <laughs> i don't know wait until i'm published maybe then i'll be cool i still uh, I mean, just feel like a big old introvert you're just finding there. an excuse to uh to stay at home and plug away on my computer i, I mean you're you're kind of leagues above us already <laughs> i wouldn't say that i mean i mean, i i can i can say that because <laughs> i i never made it through a special forces screener for one i think i made it like three days and they say yeah you're you're done <laughs> you know what i'll say about that though is that anybody who's considering it just go for it there's so many people that want to apply to the special forces and then just put it off and put it off and put it off just just go for it it's manageable it's doable I'm I'm a woman. I'm five foot two, and I made it through twice. It's doable. If I can do it, anybody can. Well, I, I feel personally attacked right now. <laughs> Just because of- yeah, I'm a I'm a hefty five nine. I don't know if I could if I could make that. <laughs> like, well, uh, I, I'm so hurt right now. <laughs> <laughs> that was not the intent. Let me uh, no, no. remove my foot from no, my no, mouth. No, 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 it's all, right. it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. He's like, yeah, that's right. I, I'm more alpha than you, bitch. What you got? <laughs> but, uh, super alpha. Super what, alpha. What's, uh, if you can share, what's going to be the, uh, maybe you already said it and I, I misheard it, but uh, did you share the title of your book? Uh, so the, the original title uh, is Fighting to Fight. And uh, that's what I got approved for, for the writing grant. And now because of legalities of, uh, of the funding and all of that, I do have to go through uh, approval to officially change the title, but my editor was sort of suggesting that maybe I should change the title to Fighter, uh, something that's a little bit more simple and concise. But I haven't got official approval from the Canada Council yet for that, so we'll see. It's a work in progress. Working title is Fighting to Fight: A Memoir by Corporal Jessica Gerard. Man, awesome! What is it like to be cool? <laughs> what is it like? So, yeah, I'll let man, you know that's... when I figure it out. <laughs> Well, well, when you figure it out, please grace us with those uh, with that knowledge because we're still trying to figure out the cool aspect. Right, just a couple of nerds talking yeah. on here. We're a bunch basically of, we're a bunch of crayon eaters who can't even spell cool. So, hey, so, I've had my days as a crayon eater too. Don't you worry. <laughs> what's your favorite? What's your favorite flavor? Oh, purple all the way. Purple <laughs> <laughs> flavor. Purple <laughs> cranberry, cranberry red. <laughs> <laughs> oh man oh, i love it so so 
being in the in the aviation shop now and have been for for some time do you have a favorite airframe uh you like working on more than others i've uh only ever officially worked on the f-18 fighter jets uh okay. i worked on other airframes we trained a lot on the uh the tutors uh while i was coming up through my training uh which are a, a training aircraft but it's also what we use as our uh show jets for the uh the snow birds uh oh, which okay. is our, our show right. team um so we trained on those but i was posted to uh, a testing squadron uh straight out of my training uh but to the f-18 uh division of that uh and then i moved on to uh the f-18 a uh, fighter pilot school where I'm still working on F-18 fighter jets. So uh, I'm, I'm very specialized on the fighter jets and getting real deep in those, but I'm super happy to be working on those. I think that if I'm going to be a, an aircraft mechanic in the military fighter jets are, or what I want to go with. <laughs> yep. That's what I've heard talking yeah. with a lot of mine. Now I got a couple of guys who work for me who were, uh, who were heavies and yeah. tankers and stuff. So it's funny to watch the fighter guys and the heavy guys go back and forth talking crap to one another <laughs> who who was better, right? You know, but, of course, uh, right? And then you get some insight to that. Do you have a favorite base? That's one thing I hear a lot of, at least here in the states, our veterans talk about a lot is uh, who you know they all had a favorite base that they like to go to, right? Hey, where were you stationed at? Where have you been? And they they're talking. Oh man, that was my favorite place to be or go to. Yeah, of course. The um, well in Canada. There's only two bases that have uh, fighter jets. So it's Baggageville, oh, really? uh, which is in Quebec, and Cold Lake, which is where I'm posted uh, in Alberta. And they're both fairly northern, uh, kind of in the middle of nowhere, uh, just because that's kind of the, the best place to run uh, a fighter jet squadron. But um, this is going to sound really unpatriotic of me, but my favorite base to work on so far has been uh, Miramar in San Diego. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think Marines. most people like that. Just the yeah, weather that's alone. a great place. I'm about to go there in a couple weeks for another month. So I'm pretty stoked about oh, that. Nice. It's nice to get away from the Canadian winters. Most dead. I can imagine. So yeah. how close is, uh, you said Cold Lake. How close is that to Calgary? Uh, it's about six hours north of Calgary. Holy cow. Ooh, so you're yeah. beyond what's it, what's the next one up there? Ed, Ed, Edmonton? <laughs> yeah. We're one? about uh, three hours Northeast of Edmonton. Oh my God. Does it yeah. ever even get like, does the snow ever go away? <laughs> yeah, the, it does. does it does. Yeah. We've got summers, but uh, our summer lasts like three weeks. Wow. <laughs> most people have to clear, most people have to clear birds off the airfield. They got to clear moose and polar bear. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's uh, it's pretty rugged up here. So I was driving to work one morning and uh, I was listening to this podcast and it was talking about this guy, Mark Twitchell, that's in Edmonton or who was in Edmonton. And the podcast is American. So to set the scene, they were giving a little bit of backstory on the city. And so they're like, well, for those of you who don't know, Edmonton is uh, the most northern town in Canada. And then they correct themselves and they go, well, no, it, it's not the most northern, but North of that, you start to get into some wasteland. And although there are towns north of Edmonton, they're called things like Grimshaw, Paddle Prairie, and Grumbler. And then, of course, they devolve into some jokes about the names of those towns. And meanwhile, here I am north of Edmonton driving to my job in Cold Lake that is named after the Cold Lake in the town. So, you know, they're not wrong. <laughs> Man, I, that's why I've never been. I've never been that far north in anywhere on the globe. Um, I've been to 
several different places in Canada. I'd say my favorite place I've been to was Calgary. And I was there last time I was up there was probably six years ago. Just went up there to fix a, a Falcon 2000 that had a, had a leaking AGB seal. But, um, but Calgary is a cool town. I really like that city. Yeah, it Super is. clean. Uh, a lot of good nightlife. Like yeah, nice little river city. walk area. Man, oh, yeah. I, all if, the bridges downtown. Yep. Super yeah, nice. I love that place. And now, don't get me wrong. Uh, in terms of being northern in Canada... I'm I'm not the northern I'm not even in in what's considered like northern Canada. I'm about halfway up Alberta at all, but uh it's nothing compared to when you get into Nunavut, the Yukon, places like that. So, I'm still pretty southern, but just not compared to most of the population because in Canada most of our population is in like a tight band right along the southern border because north of that, it yeah, it gets rugged. It's kind of like yeah, that's uh great. It's kind of like a Game of Thrones uh, MVP where like the people in Winterfell think they're the North, but then the ones north of the wall think they're the North. You know? Yes, the that's exactly J- it. Jessica's yes. essentially a wildling out there. That's so funny. Yeah, so I, I'm not north of the wall. I'm, I'm basically just in Winterfell. That's a great way of putting it. Oh my God, Winterfell. <laughs> just in Winterfell. Yeah, I'm the, not even at the wow. wall. The, the North remembers. <laughs> oh, I love it. Uh, I would say for uh, myself, a uh, favorite base. Uh, I don't think we've ever talked about this, but favorite base to work in is mm-hmm. Miramar. Yeah, I uh, love that place. Favorite base to be in, like just live there, was Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Hawaii was oh, the shit. Yeah, of course. I haven't been yet, but fingers crossed one day. Um, I mean, base wise, I mean, it has like bare minimum amenities right and that's just because like there's only so much room and then plus with it's an island yeah with the environmental laws there's only so much you can do and hawaii takes their environmental laws extremely seriously yeah i don't blame (laughs) them they should yeah Yeah. they should so but off work hours was pretty fun (laughs) if (laughs) you're an outdoorsy person i would have to yeah i would have to say i was if mine too was but it was a navy navy station but barking sands Kauai, mm. Hawaii. Oh, oh. God, I love that place. <laughs> the sounds you both just made. Just like <laughs> the weather was just perfect all the time. And like, let's say you would send a bird up, right? Mm-hmm. You'd send a bird up because we were out there for different uh, uh, testings and, and missions and such. But the bird would go up and it'd be gone for for a long time. And there was a beach right there on base. So we would just all meander right across the flight line put up our, our beach chairs and just hang out on the beach until you got that 10 minute out call. And then you'd walk back across, recover the thing and continue on from there. But man, oh. that, that's the best, isn't it? Right. Like it was a good like, time. Well, have fun in your flight. Everybody is like 10 hours. Like, Oh good. That's 10 hours of beach time. Here we go. <laughs> Break oh, out I your coolers it. and your little pop, uh, pop-up grill and all that. And then you just have someone just listening to the radio. Who's probably like some new kid who just checked in and like, just call us whenever the radio uh, goes off, and then we all just truck our way back, catch the plane, and go right back to party. <laughs> oh we, yeah, now That's we can amazing. officially now we can officially drink alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We uh, when we're down in the states, we uh, usually arrange our shifts so that we work a night shift starting at noon until whenever we need to go to. Then we come in in the morning, work until noon. And then we have 24 hours off. So we're off from noon to noon every other day, which yeah. is just the life. 
It's amazing. That sounds Beautiful. amazing. Yeah. So that's cool. We, we can't attend it off a bit, but that's this is how things well, are. That's all right. And since, so since she's a northerner who lives in Winterfell, essentially, <laughs> and, and is in the aviation maintainers realm, there's a there's a book out there, and I have it here on my shelf. I can go get. It. I can't remember who wrote it, but it's called Bent Props and Blow Pots. And it's about Alaskan bush flying and maintenance from like in like the 20s and 30s. I mean, not oh, Alaskan, cool. Canadian, sorry, Canadian bush flying. Very um, cool. Uh, so you might be interested in that just to learn really what, how those maintainers back then had to, to do stuff. Like I remember there's this one part, you know, the, it would get so cold as soon as you would land, you'd have to drain the oil into a blow pot. And so it was basically, you would, you would, it would keep the oil warm enough. You would pour it in so it wouldn't congeal. Wow. And then crank the motor right away. And then the bent props section was talking about uh, landing on frozen riverbeds and things. And you would hit a rock under the snow and mm. it would bend your prop over. So you'd take the prop off. And these are fixed pitches, right? <laughs> but back then. But you yeah. would basically, they would wedge it between two rocks and use their body weight to bend it back oh into some God. semblance of a shape, file it down, use a hammer, That's stick it back wild. on. And you'd take off. Yeah. So yeah. Canadian bush flying. You might be, you might be interested in that. Yeah. That sounds read. amazing. That also sounds like reading about my worst problems at work. But <laughs> well, <that's true. laughs> it's funny how much of our maintenance occurs because of the cold. Like sometimes when we have these extreme colds up here in the dead of winter, it wreaks havoc on the mechanics of, of aircraft. And especially once you start to get into the changing temperatures, like we'll, we can't even leave the jets outside overnight because the cold will just damage things just by existing. And so we, we minimize the amount of time the jets are outside. We bring them in as much as we can. It's a ton of towing, but uh, yeah, dealing with the cold is a, a whole different beast. So you guys probably have like heated hanger floors, I assume. Uh, yeah. Our hangers are heated. Yeah. 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 Nice. Absolutely. I know there's a place in North Dakota a uh, base out there I've been to. I can't remember the name of it right now, but um, you know, it sucks to be there in the wintertime, especially when you're out in the flight line. But man, when it's time to be in the hangar, those are nice and toasty. <laughs> right. Nice. They warm up pretty fast too. Is whenever we have to open the doors, as soon as those doors are closed, they hang up really quickly. They warm up really quickly. So that's, that's amazing. But of course you've got people grumbling every time you hear that beeping, that means that the hangar door is opening. Right. As soon as they yeah, start imagine- to open, people are yelling, close the door. Yeah. Imagine your cold weather gear is intense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've got some, uh, some pretty rugged cold weather gear that, uh, that gets pretty bulky to wear, but you just learn to function with it. I was going to say, what's the coldest temp you've ever seen? Yeah, well, we had a, a cold snap not too long ago, and it lasted for about two weeks. And it was consistently about minus 30 degrees Celsius. Um, and with wind chill, that was usually in the minus 40 degrees Celsius. And for those of you who are more familiar with Fahrenheit than Celsius, uh, those scales meet up at minus 40. So more, minus 40 degrees Celsius is equal to minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit. So pretty cold uh, for a consistent two weeks. And it's dipped back down into that recently as well. Uh, but now we're back up to the minus 10s. So it's nice and balmy these days. How does anything survive? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I'd go outside and I'd like cover my face for warmth. And uh, the the condensation from my breath would rise up and then collect on my eyelashes. 
And then I've got some pictures of my eyelashes just covered in, it looks like I'm wearing white mascara, but it's just ice forming on, on anything that it can. Wow. That, wow. That that's, I can imagine you guys' cold weather gear looks like five inches thick of sea otter fur, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I wish. No, it's like Gore-Tex stuff that starts to not work so hot after a little while. But layering, layering is your best friend in cold weather like this. I can imagine. So, <laughs> so uh, we, we, that was a very fun time. I love that. So uh, Jessica, for everyone else out there do you have some final words about transitioning from one career field to something completely opposite yeah um when i was going through my initial training in the air force i was lucky enough to have somebody who was also from the infantry on the same course as me so we kind of got to become little grumpy best friends and and commiserate with one another about all the things that angered us uh during the shift but One thing that I used to remind both him and myself of a lot was this is a different thing. This is a different place. And that really helped me get less ragey. Just think of it as something completely different and try to leave your expectations of what you were doing before completely behind you. And and that can help you with the transition. Absolutely. Uh, MVP, anything else? Uh, no, just want to say thanks for coming on the show, Jessica. Uh, appreciate you talking with us, telling us uh, about your your experience, and you've got an excellent personality and a great outlook on on life, and you and you're killing it. Thank you so aspects, much. At least from our perspective, so absolutely <laughs> continue on that positive trend and and elevating those around you like you have been. Thank you. It's been wonderful chatting with you guys. And so, and my final take on this is like. Uh, I'm taking this off with of Jessica. Like sometimes you just got to go for it, you know, like uh, assess who you are and what you want to do and what your goals are going to be and just go for it. You know, yep. the Pull work, trigger. The, yeah. So to answer for Joe, uh, Jeff Bezos thing, right? Like what would I regret more? I feel I would regret just, just letting it die, like not seizing the opportunity and just letting it die. I think I would beat myself up much more if I just, didn't do anything about it. Like I saw it, it was there. Uh, and I just, whatever reason, I just didn't go for it. <laughs> so absolutely. Research of people on their deathbed has shown that people uh, very rarely regret things that they did. And they tend to regret things that they did not do. Nail on the head. Absolutely. That uh, Jessica, again, thank you so much for coming on to the show, taking time out to be with us and sharing us your stories and your mindset and goals. And for everyone else, like, uh, please check out her episode with women with an effed up mind to hear a little bit more about what some of the stuff she hinted at that's going in her upcoming book. And, <laughs> thank and, you. That's episode 27 on that podcast. Yes. Thank you for that. I was like, oh, uh, like I was going to get, I was about to get stuck on that one. <laughs> I got you. I got you. See, there she is oh, again, hey. just showing us that personality again. <laughs> Yes. Maybe, maybe we can. Hey, you said you're coming. You're coming down south here in another month. So maybe six. Maybe we can link up in person. Ooh, That'd be awesome. That would do be another awesome. episode. That'd be sweet. That yeah, we'll talk about that sweet. offline. Absolutely. Absolutely. For sure. uh, well, everybody, thank you for everything, and thanks for listening. Thank you so much, guys. Bye, everyone. We'd like to take this time to thank our patrons for supporting our show and allowing us to continue to make episodes, maintain our gear and create merch for all of our listeners with special thanks to Erica Lamont, Chris Hawkins, Ryan Freshour, Dan Schubert, 
Jenny Dignan, and the ladies of the Dick Talk and Mimosas podcast. Thank you all so much for your support and patronage. Visit our shop at cancelformaintenance.com and grab some swag to show off both your support for us and your prowess as an aircraft technician. If you have ideas for the show or you'd like to be a guest on the show, visit our contact us section and send us a line. We will do what we can to get your ideas or yourself on the show. You can also follow us on social media such as on Facebook at Cancel for Maintenance, Instagram at Kanks, that's C-A-N-X for Maintenance Podcast, or on Twitter at CXMX Podcast. Check out some of our affiliates like Rockwell Time, where they make both rugged and classy watches to fit your lifestyle. Use the code CX4MX and save 10% off your purchase. Support us on Patreon. Our patrons get exclusive perks such as access to our Discord, discounts and early access to merch, special patron-only episodes, and so much more. Thank you again so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.